Hello, this is Jacques Hebert. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. And this is Simone Malaz. We're back together. Reunited. Yay! And it feels so good. You my peanut butter. I'm your jelly. <laughs> How's, how's it been without me, Simone? I missed you terribly. I'm glad you got a vacation, though. I know. W- were you, wait, did you go on a vacation or like was that summer camp or something? <laughs> It was a it was a college reunion uh, up at Dartmouth well, in New like Hampshire. So it's like... it's we, there's a lot of canoeing, a lot of outdoors. So you know it's college summer camp, but it was a it was a good experience. And I heard your episode with Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Twilley, and and Pepper. It was great. It was great. We I could have used a whole another show. I was very nervous to be on without you, but you know they had uh, Robert Twilley's an old friend, and Pepper is certainly a new friend. I saw some video from the event, the bycatch event. So it looked like it turned out nice and. Uh, Dr. Alicia Renfro, who's been on the show with us before, said the food was really good. Yeah, I, I wasn't there, unfortunately, but you know, I'd like to taste some of those recipes sometimes. So I heard you had a big day in Terrebonne uh, this week. We did. Terrebonne uh, hosted their inaugural Coastal Day, and um, this was really the brainchild of Parish President Gordy Dove and uh, the Levy District uh, Executive Director Reggie Dupre, who used to be a state senator and is actually the father of the CPRA. He was the one who put the legislation together. And they just had this idea um, to put on a coastal day and to get um, as much information out there as possible about some of the protection that they have in store and then some of the restoration projects. But they brought levy district equipment in, like their boats and everything. It was really amazing. So hats off to them for a really great event. They had the vision for it and uh, their staff executed it really, really nicely. They had some uh, good ink, as as some uh, comms people would say, on that as well. So um, kudos to them for a good coastal day. That's great. Yeah, and I heard there was a really good turnout, and it's definitely yes, something that yes. other parishes so they, could ex- emulate. Absolutely. We're already looking forward to next year. They uh, they think they had over 700 people come wow. through the home of Terrebonne Civic Center. So, yeah, great, great turnout, especially considering they had a tropical storm. Right. So, and tropical storm, of course, impacted that area, um, hit some of the beaches hard. Yeah, you know, uh, from Audubon's perspective, we've been watching it really closely because um, while it, Cindy may have not had the kind of, thankfully, the effects um, kind of on people and flooding. It definitely did bring some storm surge across um, beaches at the height of nesting season. So there's been some coverage and stories that have been done showing that it, it wiped out a lot of the uh, nesting birds um, who weren't able to fly away from uh, Texas to Florida. So our um, staff are out kind of monitoring the effects. And then there are also going to be volunteer opportunities this weekend to go uh, out to Grand Isle and other places to help. Um, you know, these birds recover. And so if you want to find out more, you can go to la.audubon.org to volunteer. Great, great. Also on the Mississippi River Delta website is still the information about the GOMESA um, in the administration's uh, being removed from the administration's budget. So you want to remind folks about that? Yeah, you can just go to mississippiriverdelta.org slash take action and make sure that you let your legislators know, um, your congressmen, your senators, that... um, you know, it's Gomesa is important, it's worth protecting, and that you vocalize your support for it. Yeah, just a reminder, we talk about this a lot on the show, but um, it's been uh, the past couple of years through previous administrations, uh, the threat has been to take away Gomesa uh, funds, which is dedicated here in Louisiana to coastal restoration and protection efforts. So uh, we had the vision before that came online that we would dedicate that to coastal resources and so um, that's that's a real threat that um, that that could take away from um, from resources that could be allocated to our coast. So who are we talking to today? We've got some great guests, um, good colleagues and friends um, on the show. First up, we have 
David Muth um, with the National Wildlife Federation. Um, David is... We've been saving him, huh? <laughs> I know. We told him we wanted to get our audience up before we, uh, you know, allowed him to grace us with his presence. So D- David is the director of Gulf Restoration for National Wildlife Federation. He's also been working um, in L- Louisiana and on coastal issues for quite a while. Um, previously, uh, with the Jean Lafitte National Park Service, um, and where you he was for thirty years. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. But he's also, he's a bird dude too. He is preeminent bird uh, expert uh, in the state, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Um, and we're also going to talk to him about his current role and the, what he's been doing to advocate for large scale restoration, particularly here in Louisiana, but also across the Gulf. Yeah, we have another friend coming in studio too. Yep. Alex Kokler. Um, Alex works at LumCon, and uh, he has some information about sea level rise and subsidence. David's going to talk about the Delta and hopefully Alex will talk about what's happening to the Delta now. Yeah. So we're kind of going back to the basics today with the show. We're discussing deltas since um, we are Delta dispatches and we're part of the restore the Mississippi river Delta coalition. So what are deltas? How do they form? Um, why is the Mississippi river Delta so important? And then what are some of the challenges facing our current Delta? Um, and then also of course, restoration opportunities. Great. Well, let's get to it. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Simone. Mr. David Muth, M-U-T-H, Muth. That's very good, Simone. We just had a pronunciation lesson, uh, and like my name, Simone Malaz, like people don't <laughs> screw that up, David. Uh, David, you grew up just on the other street, right? Uh, just one street down from me. I did, in Metairie, that's correct. Mm-hmm. You went to the old St. Catherine? I did. And then you went to, where, where you went to high school, David? Uh, I went to uh, Rommel High School in Metairie. Yes, very nice, very nice. Um, so, David, we've worked together for a long time, but why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and what, what you used to do and what you do now? Well, I'm uh, as we've said, I'm a native of the New Orleans region. I've spent my whole life uh, here in New Orleans and uh, uh, spending time in wetlands and in other areas of southeast Louisiana. And I was very lucky that 30 years ago when Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve was being formed. I got a job there uh, and managed to, you know, have an entire career there working on issues and and on the kinds of things that that really interested me, which included the history and the natural history and the culture uh, of Southeast Louisiana of the Delta region. And then you joined the campaign. I did. I joined the jam. I, I retired from the federal government and I joined the campaign in the beginning of 2011, working for the National Wildlife Federation. And what do you do now? I'm still working for the National Wildlife What's your title? Federation. I'm the director. Man, he's like, got I'm the stuff director out of him, huh? for Gulf Restoration. So I, in addition to the work here in coastal Louisiana, uh, be, because of this, you know, massive uh, influx of interest and resources that are coming to the entire Gulf region. Uh, we work in all five Gulf states uh, on, mm-hmm. on issues about restoration. Yeah. So let's talk about our state. Let's talk about the Delta a little bit. I've been with you several times before when we've brought folks down and they needed a crash course in Coastal 101 on how we even got here in the first place and uh, about America's Great Delta and how we got there and then what's happening to it now. So uh, let's start there. Living on a Delta, right? Uh, we're living on a delta. We're uh, on one of the uh, largest deltas in the world, depending on how you measure it. Uh, but you know, one of certainly one of the top ten uh, deltas in the world in terms of size. Uh, and like many many deltas, uh, our main city and our our, our infrastructure is all about uh, that 
connection between the interior of a continent and its great river gives you to the ocean. And that's why New Orleans is here. That's why many of our uh, uh, other ports along the Louisiana coast are here. And David, you know, um, the, we talk about this, uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but basically the delta as we know it now isn't necessarily the delta that, that's been over time. So can you talk a little bit about the history of the Mississippi River Delta, maybe some big changes, how it's shifted, and, and kind of explain the deltaic process um, that has led to what we have now in terms of the Mississippi River Delta? Sure. You know, deltas are not uh, static. They don't stay the same. They're all about change. Uh, and the reason is is that is that they're they're in, in terms of geological processes they're alive they're they're changing all the time uh, and because they react so closely to what the sea is doing uh, in our case uh, when sea level was much lower during the ice age which wasn't that long ago fourteen thousand years ago um, uh, there was no delta here there was a big valley that went all the way up uh, into Missouri and uh, Illinois. Uh, but once sea level r- reached its pretty much current stand, the, the Mississippi River began filling in the valley. And eventually it filled in the valley and it got to the Gulf and it started building deltas out onto the continental shelf. And it would build one delta, then it would take a shortcut to the sea and uh, build a new delta. And the old delta would begin to, to erode and to sink uh, and would become an estuary. And that's really been the process that we've been seeing for thousands of years in Louisiana. The city of New Orleans, the city of Houma, uh, the city of Thibodeau, uh, the suburbs of Baton Rouge, much of uh, uh, where we live is, is on that delta. And I think a lot of people don't really think about that. But we're on, we're on a delta that's been tamed. Right. And, you know... By tamed, you mean, you know, we have the Mississippi River levees. It's kind of kept the Mississippi River in place. Um, and then there have been other effects as a result of that, um, mainly, you know, land loss. And and, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that with Dr. Alex Kolker when he's here. But we're, we're going to dig into this topic a little bit more with the Mississippi River Delta, kind of why it's so important, um, you know, not just to our region, but to the world. Um, when we come back from the break, uh, you're here with Delta Dispatches, and we have David Muth on the show. Um, We'll be back right after the break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress that has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's 
biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. Uh, We are here with David Muth with the National Wildlife Federation. Um, Before the break, David, you had mentioned that um, kind of the Delta, the Mississippi River Delta, as we know it, has been um, kind of put stuck in place, you know, by the Mississippi River levees. So let's talk a little bit. What is the state of the Mississippi River Delta currently? Well, it's in pretty sad shape. Uh, We, you know, we as as the people who settled this Delta uh, made a decision a long time ago that we were going to do our best to tame the river. uh, And we were very successful at that. We levied it. We closed off all of the distributary channels uh and uh we we channelize the navigation system and the result of that is that uh, a system that used to be sustained by the spring overflow by the distribution of sediments and fresh water from the river uh, has really been left open to salt water to the gulf of mexico that makes great estuaries and that's one of the reasons we've uh, been so productive in terms of seafood for the last uh, 100 years, but it's come at a price, and the price is the total amount of land that's available. So, David, is there hope to returning to a healthy delta? And I understand what you're saying about seafood. That's a really good point. But uh, uh, is there hope in returning it to more natural in the way that it was? Uh, there absolutely, absolutely is hope. And uh, we have something that many, many, many coastal areas of the world don't have. Of coastal areas that are watching rising sea level, we have a river full of sediment, and we just have to figure out how to tap that sediment. The state master plan uh, has a series of projects that are envisioned uh, over the next 50 years that will begin to substantially increase the amount of sediment that we get instead of putting it out over the edge of the continental shelf or picking it up in dredges that we actually put into wetlands to sustain and, and build new wetlands. And, you know, I, our organization, of course, we're, we're active uh, proponents and, and believers in sediment diversions, um, and we believe they're crucial, as you said. So let's talk about specifics. Um, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion is the furthest along in terms of implementation. Um, tell us a little bit about this diversion, why it's so important, and what is the status of it? Yeah, so this is a, a one of those diversion ideas that's been on the books for at least 30 years, because if you look at a map of Louisiana, it's pretty obvious you have the upper Barataria Basin, uh, you know, north of Barataria Bay, the marsh has been collapsing, it's been disappearing, and the river's right there. Uh, So this has been kicked around in every planning document for the last 30 years. The great news is that we are on the verge. The uh, state has begun the formal process of getting permits, of doing the environmental impact statement to go to construction of the mid-barataria diversion. And it's going to be a really major change in the way we manage the river. It's going to be 75,000 cubic feet per second, which is one of those 
uh, terms people throw around, but to put that in perspective, when it's flowing at full capacity, and it'll only do that during big flood years, but when it's flowing at full capacity, it'll be one of the biggest rivers in North America. So, David, um, they are moving along in that process, and, and they're close to doing some scoping meetings with an EIS. So we'll, we've had uh, Rudy Simino and some of the state managers. So um, we'll come back to um, that when it gets closer to the event. But, but maybe explain a little bit of that process about EISs and scoping meetings, anything like that. There's, there's several layers that you have to get through, correct? There are a lot of layers that we still have to get through. We have to uh, get permits from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to build a diversion through the river levees and through the back levee. Uh, And in order to issue that permit, the Corps of Engineers uh, has to uh, do an environmental impact statement. And that's got to analyze not just the footprint of that project, but but the consequences of the project to the ecosystem at large, and to human communities at large. So that's the process that we're beginning now. And David, I want to kind of shift back a little bit. So, I mean, obviously, sediment diversions are hugely important. We just talked a little bit about the Mid-Barrett area sediment diversion. There are others in the in the Coastal Master Plan that we focus on, and folks can go to our website, our CPRA's website, to learn more. Um, but, you know, we often get the question, why why don't you just move, right? Sea, level, sea levels are rising. You have this terrible land loss crisis. Can you talk a little bit about why the Mississippi River Delta is so important? I mean, maybe was historically to Native Americans, to European settlers, and even today remains so important, not just to the people who live here, but to the nation. Well, it's uh, important uh, to be near the resource. So whether that resource uh, is the navigation opportunities of having a city uh, near the uh, a city and a major port system near the mouth of a river that drains uh, a huge part of a continent uh, so that you can take the raw materials that come from the interior of the continent, put them on ships, and send them overseas. You have to have a place to do that. The farther in, inland you do that, the more expensive it is. We also have the uh, wildlife resources and the seafood resources that if you're going to take advantage of those resources, enjoy those resources, you have to be close to them. And finally, we happen to be sitting in the, in the cradle of oil and gas production and refining, and refining in North America. Uh, and so the infrastructure to make that work is here. And if you have to move it, the price is going to go up. By a little bit. Like quite a bit. <laughs> uh, David, you mentioned earlier you walk, you work across the Gulf. You work, uh, you ha- obviously have the pleasure of being a Louisiana native and living here now, but you work across the Gulf. So how different or, or not different are they, uh, are the other states, uh, the challenges that they face versus Louisiana? Um, are some the same or some different? Tell us a little bit about that. There's a, there's a lot of overlap in those challenges. There's uh, a lot of, uh, Things that they face uh, in coastal wetlands around the Gulf from the Everglades to the Rio Grande Valley that are very similar. But at the same time, our, our position on a delta, which has a very high subsidence rate, um, has, has much bigger implications. And one of the reasons that Louisiana has reached the point of having a master plan and a master planning process is because, frankly, we've been... Uh, suffering the consequences uh, more acutely than many other areas of the Gulf. But there are areas of the Gulf with very similar uh, uh, problems and similar amounts of planning and effort that are going into restoration, including the Everglades. So it's a mixed bag. 
right? And I mean, as much as, you know, our situation is severe and dire, I mean, we also need to pat ourselves on the back a little bit in terms of how far we've come, how comprehensive our plan is. And we've, we've focused on the master plan a lot on this show and had um, Brent Haas from CPRA and others on. Um, so it is a huge accomplishment and there are um, reasons to be hopeful despite the situation we face. David, I have to ask you this question because Simone likes um, and I like to keep it fun in addition to, you know, covering the substance. So our fun question for the day for you is what is your favorite bird? Oh, I, you know, I don't have a favorite bird. The, my favorite bird is the next one that I see that I hadn't seen before. So it's my next life bird. You see, and that, I, I feel like that's the answer that the real birding experts have. It's very similar to uh, what we, with Dr. Eric Johnson with Audubon, Louisiana said, we asked him, what's your favorite bird? He said, whatever one I'm looking at. So <laughs> it's like picking among children. Well, um, David, we really appreciate your being on the show. We hope to have you back soon. Um, you, you're, you're not going to go too far, so we'll have you on for an update on Midbarataria and some other um, topics. Um, but for now, uh, thank you. And when we're, we come back from the break, we're going to have Dr. Alex Kolker, and we're going to dig into some of the topics, um, you know, some of the challenges that face our Delta, particularly subsidence, and then talking a little bit more about the opportunities to restore the great Mississippi River Delta. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be back after the break. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We're back uh, with Dr. Alex Kolker. Dr. Kolker is currently... And he has, uh, Alex has a guest. Uh, special guest. Don't be rude. Uh, sorry. And my, and my guest here is, is Dupree, who is a Zydeco retriever. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and you and Zu- Dupree were just out uh, in we, the marshes. We were, out, we were out at Carnarvon, yes. Is your nice. marsh dog? He is a marsh dog, exactly. <laughs> well, Jacques was hoping to get the folks on who make the Nutria treats. Uh-huh. So. Oh, yeah. He, have he, you... will, he will do some promotion for that. <laughs> oh, good. Is he a, he's a fan of he the Nutria t- <laughs> treats. That's Alex, great. Alex thinks Dupree is a little or medium-sized dog. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty big. He's a healthy dog. Yeah. Healthy dog. Welcome, and thank you for coming in the studio. Hey, we're glad to have it's you. It's great to be here today. Day. Absolutely. It, it just happened to be that you were coming yeah. from Carnarvon. I was coming so. from Carnarvon, so thanks for the invite. But I was, it was, I was out there. So. Great, great. We're going to talk about Carnarvon in a little bit, Perfect. but we we want to get to know you some. So you're based down at Lumcon and right, Cocodry. Right. So you got to tell people what Lumcon okay, so is. Lumcon. May have to tell them where Cocodry is. <laughs> So, LUMCON, we are the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium. Uh, we are effectively the, the marine lab for the state of Louisiana. So, we are a, a, a marine lab, and we're down in Cocodry, which is about 45 minutes south, south of Homa. And the lab, we do all kinds of marine science. So, I'm a coastal geologist, uh, but we have biologists, fisheries people. Um, we got actually a couple of new fisheries people that just joined us and a, and a, new, geo- and a new environmental chemist. Nice. That joined us as well. So. We had um, we had Dr. Twilio on last week, and he told me that that was his um, when he came to Louisiana. That's where his interview was. That he had to drive down to Lumcon, and they had just built and, Lumcon. And you know, he so. actually has told me he's like, "That's the reason I came to Louisiana." Yeah. He has told me that it is a it is a fantastic facility. In part, it's great because you can do fantastic scientific research. And you're right out in the middle of the marsh. Yes. And our boats have access to the open Gulf of Mexico. So you can take samples and analyze, you know, environmental samples in near real time and do experiments that you just 
couldn't do at a campus in Baton Rouge or New Orleans. Absolutely. Ooh, and y'all have a um, you have a beautiful building down there, and we were talking about how well it was constructed it, for it, it was, to, to withstand hurricanes. Yeah, so that, that and, building has withstood um, Andrew some and, doozies, and, and Andrew, right? <laughs> and, yes, that, some before my time. I can guarantee you that. But uh, it is under it has withstood a number of of hurricanes. Now we are close to the water, and we right. are concerned about rising waters and rising. And sea y'all levels. get y'all you, you more have problems with like water in the we, parking lot and I mean, access just, to the building itself. It's, yeah, I mean we have problems. We actually, I would almost say the problems are more complicated on a sunny day than a hurricane. Mm-hmm. I mean it, it's actually a very strong, robust building that can survive a hurricane. Our bigger concern, I think, in the near term is is access and. You know, when can you get, can the delivery people get trucks up to the building right. and those kinds right. of questions. And staff, y'all, y'all, I think when I had a meeting at Lumcana, I heard that y'all had 3,000 school children come through the building, I, I think. Was, I think it's maybe 5,000. 5,000, yeah. I don't even, it's it's a lot. You I bring mean, we, Dupree to entertain them, is that? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it doesn't come down as often as he would like. But we do get, you know, we, as, as someone, as, uh, as our ed person says, we have K to gray. We have everything from K to 12 students, university students graduate students, uh, researchers coming over, and we and seniors groups as well, adult ed and seniors groups and teacher trainings. So you name it, the sec- the age, the section of the population, we if we, we, we work with students from across the spectrum. And it's really one of the, one, in my view, it's one of the rewarding things about working there because we can work with, talk to so many different kinds of people about coastal Louisiana and the interesting things about right. it. Right, and they're interested. So, Dr. Kolker, you as a geologist study uh, subsidence quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you explain, you know, to the average person that may not know what is subsidence? Subsidence is the land sinking. Okay. So, it's just the land lowering is basically what subsidence is. Is that your first day of, of undergrad? Was <laughs> <laughs> subsidence is when the land sinks. End of class. <laughs> Past Geology 101. And, but it, it's a big problem here, but correct? It, it's actually, it's a, it's a big issue here in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. We're sinking. And as scientists, of course, one of the questions that we have is how fast are we sinking, why are we sinking, and where are we sinking? Because we're not sinking the same rate all across the coast, and those rates probably are not the same. Um, in, they might change over time, too. And, you know, we, we were talking with David Muth earlier about how a delta is formed, and part of that subsidence is actually that we're living on a delta, that different parts are sinking. A- absolutely. So the, the muckier, more organic soils tend to sink faster because they just don't have the a robust strength that like a solid mineral soil, like a, you know, that might be like the, the river sands. River sands tend to sink relatively slowly, whereas organic, mucky, marshy stuff tends to sink uh, much quicker. And areas where the sediment is really thick, like say at the, at the bird's foot, at the mouth of the river, those places tend to sink relatively quickly. And areas that have relatively shallow um, marshes, those areas tend to sink uh, a little slower. So tell us about subsidence and and how that relates to relative sea level rise and yeah. and okay. how, yeah, so, how so, do those work together in in a way here for Louisiana? So, so yes, yeah, so we talk the technical term is relative sea level rise. The short story is the water can can go up for two reasons, right? It can either go up because the land sinks or it can go up because the water level raises. And of course, we have to deal with with both here in South Louisiana. We're sinking, as we said. Uh, and of course, global sea levels are are rising. Global sea levels are going up. So you put the combination of those two together, and that's what scientists call relative sea level rise. But to your average person, or to to a lot of water level gauges, that just shows the water going up. 
And, you know, there was a recent study that came out by the Geological Society of America, uh, a new subsidence map for coastal Louisiana. It showed that rates were pretty high uh, in terms you, of subsidence. You know, that- I, I will say that that map, the, the, the data analysis and the patterns that they showed were, were beautiful. Um, one thing I would say is the, the overall magnitude of that was actually not all that shocking. They okay. th- Those rates were about a centimeter a year, I think, that, um, coast-wide, which is a pretty similar average to what we've been saying for, for a while. What was really, to me as a scientist, what was new about that was the patterns and the level of resolution that they had, that they had basically analyzed something close to 300 stations. Wow. So they were, and they were able to show, for example, higher subsidence in areas around the Atchafalaya River, which many people thought was a slow subsidence area. So I would say there were some really interesting patterns in that and unusual patterns that were unexpected. But the overall average rate, in my opinion, was um, was not too different from from what people have said in, in years past. And it's within the range of that's with, the yeah. 2017 Coastal Master it's Plan with, considers. Yeah, yeah, and the master plan, you know, we're trying to, I think as scientists, we're all trying to come up with a better map. Um, that's within the range that people have talked with the master plan. It's a little slower in some places and a little faster in others. Um, but that's within the range of what we had thought for the for for. Yeah, within the range. And let's dig into that a little bit because you were at Carnarvon today where we've talked there's been land building as a result of that freshwater input. You, you mentioned Wax Lake Delta, which we often talk about as an example of hope for Louisiana because of the land building. But why is the land sinking more quickly in those areas? So, you know, freshly consolidated sediments tend to sink, t- tend to tend to compact, right? So are the, the sediment around here, a lot of the Louisiana coast is kind of, in a way, it's, it's mucky. It's kind of sort of light and fluffy as far as like geological materials are go. And they, they, they settle out over time. So freshly deposited sediments tend to tend to sink uh, a little bit more quickly than old consolidated sediments. Um, likewise, when you have fresh water, when you put a lot of sediment, you can load the area. It's, sediment is heavy and you can load the areas and cause areas to, to sink. But I guess that's why it's important to have that kind of replenishment. Right. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So the, so part of the reason that, that, that diversions are a key part of the coastal master plan is that they continually add sediment to the um, to the marsh. That they're a relatively consistent supply of material, and so as we as the land sinks and as water levels go up, you constantly need to add new sediment to the area. And diversions do that without all of the. They do it basically in a way once you've built the structure for almost for free because you're just constantly adding material. So it's a relatively efficient, both economically and environmentally way to, to both build new land and maintain the land that's already out there. Great. And I want to talk a little bit more about that when we come back from the break. I know you did a tour with WWNO in New Orleans of potholes, a we, pothole bike tour. Yes, we did, which was one of the most fun uh, interviews and most fun things I've done here in, in coastal Louisiana. So, so we always ask a fun question, but Alex, what was your favorite pothole? <laughs> was it the one with the Christmas tree in it? <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get back from the break. Um, yes. Thank you, BJ. All right. All right. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you when we get back. All 
All right, we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast. It's people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We're here with Dr. Alex Kolker and Dupree, very special guest. Penny's favorite. The the coastal Zydeco retriever. (laughs) Uh, We were talking about potholes before the break, but um, potholes are actually a Potholes are actually a a part of of the subsiding picture here. So the the ground, New Orleans is subsiding, and some of these, you know, Pothole features are, are are part of the subsidence of the area, and, and it, you know, actually, New Orleans, of course, very ra- parts of New Orleans are very rapidly subsiding, and some of the places that have the worst potholes, like like Lakeview, are it's in part because they have the highest rates of subsidence. Yeah, and I think people, you know, we we were joking about the pothole bike tour, but I mean, this is a way that people right here, the way that you just connected that the potholes are caused by subsidence, but that's also some of the non-structural features that people have here in New Orleans, why they have you know, slabs and elevated homes. I mean, well, all yeah, of that so, is... All, a, right, because New Orleans has always been a... It's a, It's a. you know, it's a. It's built on the marsh and it's a, it's a naturally poorly drained environment and um, and we need to... People here need to think about how do we, how do we deal... How do we live with water in the city? Um, and, and to some extent, you know, one, one thing, the mistake that we made in the past was that they dry... They ran the pumps very hard in years past and when you dry out the marsh and the marshy soils that make this area you can lead to subsidence so it upset and the balance in a way it upset, mm-hmm. it upset the balance in a way so and part of the sinking is because they were overly aggressive in pumping water out of the um out of, out of the city of new orleans yeah, and I know there's some attempts and kind of to look at how we can better live with water. There's discussion right, about the right. Gentilly Water District, right, which, and, and a lot of that, and a lot of that, the idea is to hold water um, into the in the soils for longer, so that it can soak into the soil, so it um, so the ground doesn't sink, so we don't get that that sinking that's caused by drying out. So to talk a little bit outside the city, you studied West Bay and Davis Pond diversions. So tell us a little bit about those diversions. Um, and we talk about you were just at Carnarvon, and was, people people may pass them and don't even know I, what I, that is. I right know, there. I know. I mean, a diversion is sort of a it's sort of an odd word, right? Yeah, right, but, right. But but it, it's basically a diversion is um, an artificial small mouth of the river, mm-hmm. right? It's basically a, a, a cut in the river that mimics the mouth of the river and the areas where the flow spreads out and um, and because the flow s- spreads out and slows down a lot of mud settles out and the this is originally how the coast was built and these are the kinds of features that people want to construct or or encourage as as part of coastal restoration and and in some ways I can understand why it's hard to people don't know about them because you you kind of you either need to get up in the air or out mm-hmm. in a boat. Right. You know, you need to. They're they're not necessarily the most accessible places. So I can understand why they can be um, why they can be a little bit confusing for people. I agree that, and I know. Um, so they had a diversion expert panel that that was put together when um, for to study some of these issues. And I remember talking to one of the scientists who came from out of state, and he said, "So basically, you want control." And that's what a diversion is, right? It's, is that it's, controlled? It's, it's, it's almost like controlled, maybe controlled chaos. <laughs> it is, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but you want, you want in some ways, you want control so that right. you can prov- you know, maximize the benefits and minimize the impacts. Um, but you also want to, don't, you don't want to over-control because you, want, you, you also want to let nature do what it's good at. And in part, the reason that diversions are 
a really efficient way to build land is that we don't have to control every single part of them. And Alex, I know you were part of a team of scientists that um, comprised the Sediment Diversion Expert Operations Working Group. Mm -hmm. And one of your main studies was around when to open the diversion to maximize the amount of sediment. Right. And, I'll, and you know, the short story is that you often want to, you know, open diversion to their max, let's say late winter, early spring, when the river is rising. And that turns out to be the time when there's the most sediment in the river there's the most mud in the river and so you have the most chance of success um, and at the same time you're going to have the fewest problems because the um the oysters can deal with i've been told they can deal for example with with uh, fresh water if it's relatively cold um, the people that are concerned about uh shoaling in the mississippi river and impacts to navigation those problems are, are certainly less when the river is high so often uh, late winter, early spring turns out to be a, a good time when you can get the most benefit, but you also have the few, and you also have the fewest adverse impacts. Yeah, I think that was that was really one of the thoughts. I think that when people hear diversion and we talk about you know controlled chaos, but I mean you know we're not letting loose seventy five thousand CFS whenever we want. I mean it's very controlled, it's very thought out, and and the operations working group that y'all y'all you know, y'all went into a deep dive on that. When mm. might be best? Right. When and can you get the same bang for a different buck? And, and right, because I can understand 75,000 CFS is, it's a lot of water. Yeah. Right. It sure. would be, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, so that's about three times the size of the Hudson River. Right. So that's a big, that would be like one of the top 20 rivers in the country. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a big, that's a big amount of water. And I can understand that if you were not careful about it, it could lead to problems. But I think that part of the idea of this working group was to look at how you can deal with it in a controlled and regulated way so that you maximize the maximize the benefits and, and, and minimize the impacts. And so really, you know, crank them up when you can get the most land building, but scale them back when you might have the... Um, the most potential adverse impact. Yeah, so even projects like Davis Pond, I mean, they have an operational plan. And right, and I, and I think I was told every single water control structure in this country has an operational mm. plan. Um, the idea is that you pre, is that you you pre decide when you're going to open it and when you're going to close it, and you've got certain thresholds. Right. Um, and so I think that with with this diversion, we're gonna we're gonna want to have the the same kind of structure that at when the flow gets to at when we have X, Y, and Z conditions. It gets opened up, and that would also give people the predictability because they would know when that diversion was going to be opened up, right? So we kind of all know when the river gets to X point, they open up the Bonacary. This would be right. something like that, and, and people could pretty much say, okay, the diversion's going to, we can see what's happening in the river, and, you know, the, the meteorological forecasting has gotten a lot better. Um, we can predict the river stage pretty well almost a month in advance. Um, and so you could... You could look at those predictions and it would be like an almanac and you could start to, if you were a fisherman and you were concerned about potential impacts, you could, you could look at the weather and figure out when they were going to open it and, and, and plan around that. And Alex, uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, you mentioned that at LumpCon you're K to gray and, uh, you know, having worked in this space for so long, do you see an uptick in interest among the scientific community or even among students and studying and looking for solutions on Louisiana's coast? You know, I have noticed that, um, that, co that coastal issues in, in the students, students are really interested in coastal issues. I just noticed in even the university classes that I teach, when I talk about sediment, 
Some people are into it. Some people are not. <laughs> and when I talk about coastal issues, people really respond. Mm-hmm. And I think that people have really, um, people really take to coastal issues in part because it's this fascinating sort of mix of both the science and the humans. And it's not just about getting the science right. It's not just about getting the people right. It's about doing both. And I think that that's, it's a challenging problem. And I think it's a really engaging problem, too. I agree. I think we were talking about Terrebonne had a coastal day and 700 people came. Which is the, which is great yeah, that, that, that many people are yeah. interested in the are that interested in the coast. Right. And and I think a lot of it has to do with people like you and some of the other folks that we've had on Alicia and, Renfro and Dr. Reed that you've made it also accessible for them. Well, to I, understand I, I, I would the, hope so. But I also, and I, also I, I would hope I would take the compliment. But I think it's also that people are really concerned about the area mm-hmm. that they live in. And that they're really engaged. And so it's, it may be some of us that are loudmouths have had some role, but I think it's also just that people are really concerned about their area that they live in. So we have to wrap it up, but we always ask a fun question before we go. So you're stuck on a barrier island with only three things. What three things would you bring? Fresh water and my dog. <laughs> and then whatever comes your way. And you whatever get an else extra. comes my way. Maybe a fishing pole. <laughs> and a fishing pole. There Fresh water and dog and a fishing to pole. Help him out there. Yeah, maybe, so. maybe something to eat. <laughs> yeah. <come on. laughs> well, thank you so much, All right, uh, well, Dr. Colker and Dupree for du- being on. All right, Dupree's Dupree is, running for mayor. Du- he is running for mayor. He's got a Facebook page and everything. <laughs> Dupree for mayor. But thank you all. And, and please come down to Cocodry. Come down to come down to Lumcon. And we'll show you around. And the website for LumCon? www.lumcon.edu. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And this has been another wonderful episode. It's great to be reunited. And I thank our guests. Uh, This has been Delta Dispatches. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Thank you all.